That's great. Super great. Sorry, this chair's loud. Creaky, creak. <laughs> it's private horsey. Private horsey's come back. Still the best ever. It was the best ever. From Atlanta, not Hotlanta. Nobody calls it that, you dang tourists. It's the Whole World Improv Podcast, brought to you by Whole World Improv Theater, Atlanta's original home of improv. Here are your hosts, artistic director Chip Powell, and a man who's always trying to edit in the evenings, but doesn't ever seem to get enough done. Hmm. Yeah, single guy lives alone at his computer late at night. I wonder what that's all about. I wonder why you don't get stuff done. You a gamer? Gamer John? World of Warcraft? Maybe you're playing The Sims? Maybe you have a pen pal? I think those are probably all the options. It's gotta be one of them, right? Or maybe you're looking at delicious flan desserts on Only Flans. <laughs> John Mihalik. Dude, did you see that, uh, that that flan with like the glaze on top, with like the crispy glaze that you like? Uh, you like poke a spoon through and then just like all the goodness on the inside. Dude, you're thinking of tiramisu. That's not fawn. Get to know your fawns, man. Hey, everybody. It's John. Thanks for tuning in this week. It's part two of our interview with Jenny Andrews and Phil Cater. We've mentioned in previous episodes about a legendary after party at a club named Backstreet. It's a club that closed in 2004, but it was once called the Studio 54 of the South. So you can see why it would have been popular with the young group of actors. What we're going to learn, though, is that the cast was partying after a particular kind of improv show called a novel. And Phil was rather enthusiastic about describing both subjects. Michael Snow and I were asleep in the cafe watching a movie. I woke up, and uh, as I was trying to leave the theater, I ran into many people. <laughs> Naked. 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 Naked? Not me. I wasn't. We had uh, five children. <laughs> I'm serious. There was a baby boom. My oldest was conceived yeah. on that stage. Yeah. Yeah. My oldest son, who is now 21, was conceived probably on the couch you're sitting on right now. <laughs> no, it was the night that y'all were doing a novel and Jenny was getting Lance to do chiropractic work and Michael Snow was playing Lance's like wife and he breaks her neck and she was your girlfriend. And so she dies. <laughs> And then you get upset, Lance goes to prison, and y'all had this really intense scene. Yeah. But it was a really good show. Yeah. I guess everybody decided to celebrate. We just didn't know that uh, we were creating the next generation of whole world. Yeah. Of children. <laughs> What's a novel? John's asking what a novel is. Who wants to take Oh, my gosh. Can I go? Please. Can I go? Okay. Um. There are two things that I think we should talk about how Webster did improv that really impressed me. The first one was the novel. Now, the novel is a storytelling device where you have a story with music cues and you know what the beats of the story are. Mm -hmm. We open on 
Jenny and Anna with suitcases by a train station. And they're two orphans running away from home. And then they do buzzer game. Right, that's it. You and then there's three gangsters who, pimps, who run the subway station. These girls are going to meet later. And it's Phil West and Michael Sweeney. And they do sit, stand, lean. But then they get up about how they're going to do this big drug deal. And then Jenny and Anna run into the middle of that. And by the end of the show, we've actually done an entire story. Usually there's some sort of, you know, cliffhanger at the end of act one. And then everybody comes together in a big Oscar musical mess of goodness and yelling and singing at the very end of the show. I mean, isn't it sort of based on a, what a herald is? It's based on, it's a structured herald. The structure is always there, but the novel was Webster had actual costume changes where we knew what characters were going to be. And a big part of it was the music cue. Yeah, yeah. Music cues, he would go back and forth. And those, those were a huge part of the novels. Like when I started writing them in my hubris, <laughs> when I started writing my own novels, music was the key part of it. It was what really tied a lot of it together mm -hmm. uh, in just a story. And the second thing he did was No Tell Motel. Yeah. I love No Tell Motel. No Same. Tell Motel was when he would have a set list, but he wouldn't tell us what yeah. it was. We would warm up for the show. He goes, okay, I need you after this second renegade of Chips Ahore, I need you to dress up in a barber outfit and be ready to go downstage. And that's that's what No Tell Motel was. You didn't know what was going to happen. And I think it was like we'd been there at Spring Street maybe four or five years before he started doing that. Yeah. And yep. it was yeah. so thrilling. Yeah. You know, not know what you were going to do. He also did something once where he had part of the cast sit in the front of the stage and then we would come up like he would call yeah. us up. And that yeah, was exciting because that. we were sitting with the audience. You know, it was yeah. so exciting to jump up there and instead of hiding backstage. Yeah, it was always nice to have that. And I know you do that too, Chip, still to this day. You have the hotel no-tell shows and you sometimes let the cast sit out in the audience. I know we did several times for the later show. And that's always nice. It's a nice change up because, you know, there's no costumes involved. It's like right in the moment. And I enjoyed that as well. I really did. I loved doing novels. I was always happy when I was like, got to be in one. Because yeah. you felt like a true actor. And then you also felt a little special because you were, it was written about you or, you know, right. you were the main character or there, Are there any was. novels that stand out in your mind? God. I remember the Western. Oh yeah. The Western was a big production. I remember the, the one where it was loosely based on Dazed and Confused. And I, I don't even remember what it was about, but I feel like that was like, for me, the first novel that I was like, wow, this is really fun. And it's amazing to me how well we executed that shit. Cause I have been in some novels since then that I've just been like, Jesus Christ, this is horrible. And you know, we had off nights too, for sure. But like, we I were don't know so this... intense. Yeah. Remember a real cry? That was when uh, Webster challenged us. He goes, I want to see you really cry in this show. And the novel was called A Real Cry. And we had to fucking try to really cry in the show. <laughs> It's a little twisted when you think about it, but it created a great fucking show because yeah. we're all like, yeah, I'm going to be the best crier. We're actors, man. Yeah. We're not just improv comedians. We're actors, man. I got mostly, uh, Michael Snow and I were just flower shop owners in every show. <laughs> <laughs> What was Lauren and Lauren was and Michael Snow? The boys in chorus. <laughs> We're the boys in chorus. We hope you like our show. Glad you're rooting for us. And now we have to go. Yeah, who's laughing now, right, Chip? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> who's artistic director now? 
I did one which was an improvised novel. And that was probably the scariest one because I knew the games in the first act. I didn't know the games in the second act. I had a bunch to pull from, but I basically told the entire cast, we don't know what's happening tonight. And we're going to make up this entire novel. It was more like a Herald, but I didn't even know the games in the second act, which was like, you know, crazy scary. But I remember that one was a lot of fun. You put me in one where I was the mean office executive. So exciting for me because I was doing my Oscar moment and it was right before intermission and the lights went out and you turned a flashlight on and gave me a spotlight so I could finish my speech. But Lynn told us that due to Georgia law, because the power was out, we had to ask everybody to leave the theater. <laughs> so I was like, oh man, I get to be in the novel and I'm the lead and then never got to. Meanwhile, Michael Snow's back there in the breaker. <laughs> <laughs> Not this time, Powell. Has anybody touched on the podcast on the renegade culture? Oh, yeah. No. yeah a little bit. Not as My much. God. That was cutthroat right there. Like, yeah. scene time was okay on stage, but if you got a good renegade, that was the deal. And it wasn't as competitive as all that, but I, you know, I do remember, like, I, that's how I got into editing in the first place, is I wanted to cut my own renegades. I left my class and- Oh, my God, thong, yes. And he handed me a thong and he's like, go in the park tavern and put this on and come back out. <laughs> I come out and Michael Snow is on the top of the hill next to a guy, squirting lotion on his ass. And I was like, what is going on? Well, I think I cut whole, that one. It was we, it was great. I love Chips of Horror. We did the whole mall dance. What a feeling. Yeah. I mean- we were fucking cutting edge, man. <laughs> yeah. Nobody and was doing that shit. Georgia was a get permission after you were secretly videotaped state, <laughs> which is good. Because if we had been California, you have to get permission before you videotape. But we were like, we were a beg forgiveness state rather than a beg permission. So we could go anywhere we wanted, Piedmont Park. As long as we could hide cameras somewhere, mm -hmm. we were doing it. And we were really cutting edge. I don't think anybody was doing anything like that it's, at the time. It was no. before YouTube. Yeah. No, I know. I mean, this normally you'd put this stuff on YouTube, but we're like, well, we have it on VHS and we show it on our monitors in the theater. <laughs> we a show one night and you were doing a renegade and somebody said, Phil's been arrested. <laughs> yeah. Were you? Yeah. She told me to get off the sidewalk while I was doing an interview and I kept asking her about one of the Kennedys had just died in a plane crash. And I kept grilling her about what she knew about it since she was the police. And so she turned me around and arrested me. And it was really sad. The last thing I say is, can somebody call my wife? <laughs> As I'm hauled off. That I sat in the hilarious. back of the cruiser handcuffed for like 45 minutes while she flipped through a book looking at what to charge me with. Obstructing the sidewalk is basically all she could come up with. And I think they eventually let me go. But yeah, I was totally cuffed and stuffed. <laughs> Funny. Oh, man. Good times. It was good times. So you were here as one of the founding members. You took some time off, but then you did come back. Mm -hmm. What did you notice the most when you came back? What did I notice the most? Um, I guess not really one thing. I mean, it was still a little weird for me to come back in because I only really knew Chip and Emily, really. I was super humbled by it. Like, I wasn't about to come in and be like, do you know who I am? I'm like, not at all. <laughs> I was really humbled being there. I was perfectly fine just like rehearsing and like maybe if I got in on a show, that was just a thrill to me to even be there. But in terms of being different, it didn't feel different. Obviously, it was a much bigger group that was all convening together for rehearsal. You know, we would split off and just be able to do jam stuff. And 
you know, it just different in that way that it felt more like a theater company who does improv and run excellently by Chip and Emily. And it was just nice to see for sure. But it's so different than what it was in the beginning. I mean, there's no denying that, but that's not to say one is better than the other, just completely different. But it's rare. I mean, you hear about the Groundlings and Second City as theater mm-hmm. companies that actually stuck around. Whole World is rare in yeah. that really happened. That when the bloom is off the rush of the very first group that does it, for that institution to stick around is extremely rare. And that's all kudos to Chip. Yeah, and in the hands of original cast members, you know, who love the theater, that's, I mean, that's a gift in and of itself for Whole World and the city of Atlanta. Right, right. Like Second City, I guess, Groundlings are institutions with like, you know, huge grants and a lot of money. Right. Uh, Whole World maybe is now. Yeah, we're Do you guys have huge grants and a lot of money? Yeah, we're doing good with the grants. Great. See? It's like I was telling the audience last night, we survived a pandemic and you people are back. And I was out in the back parking lot because we set up a little space for people to have an after party. And this guy came up to me. He said, I came here in 1994 when I was at Georgia Tech. And he's like, I've been coming here all these years and I'm so proud of you. And I was like, oh my God. That's great. People come back and still participate. I think that it's also when we were discussing, you know, it was the 25th year and we were going into 26. We were going into a pandemic. We wanted to include alumni or do something like some sort of fundraiser. And I thought, well, now we're just fundraising all the time. And this one came to me and said, hey, I want to do a podcast. And I went, oh my God, we got to bring all the people back that started this because- Great idea. We know all these people and mm-hmm. that's why we're here. I want to say one thing though, back to what John had asked me, like, what did I notice? And I do want to say that it's so thrilling as an alumni member that really nothing has changed. The stage fill is the same. The windows are the same. The doors the same. I mean, they've probably made improvements over the years. So like, are you kidding me? Look broken, at the but it's all the same. on that stage. Yeah, yeah. The word work on that stage, that is gorgeous. Yeah. We had plywood. I know, but I mean, the, the layout is the same. The it's the same, like, yeah. uh, you know, stage left, stage right, you know, the down, platform. Down right, down right. right. Yeah. yeah, it's the same. And that is, that's a cool thing. That's a cool yeah. thing. It's a comfortability for sure. If you were to go back on that stage, you're like, oh, yeah. I'm at home here. There's nothing, nothing's different. <laughs> I can do a newscast from this window yes. and enter as a waiter <laughs> from this window. I can say one thing, you know, I've been here, well, I've been on the Apprentice cast for six years. I was a student, the old student program. And this guy was my teacher through most of that. I'm sorry. (laughs) It really, it really is a lot similar to what the alumni, how you two described it. You know, there is competition here, but you know, it's a supportive type of competition. Yeah. Everybody's trying to do their best. And a lot of the negative people, they don't, they don't stay around very often. Yeah. yeah, that's true. And I did notice that too. I did notice that mm-hmm. Chip, I mean, Chip's an amazing artistic director and he he leads with so much, you know, there's there's a, a brevity about him. So nothing is too serious. You know, he's very respectful, everybody. Nothing, nothing ever seemed to like get under his skin. And if it did, he never would show it. So that was nice. And it's always nice to like see these young people come in and just so green and just want to do well and, you know, being in rehearsals with them and just how humble they all are. And that's nice. And of course, not everyone. I mean, I'm not going to name name, but not everyone. Um, <laughs> but still, they're around too. So, 
But everybody's there because they love doing improv, so I get it. Hey, you've been listening to people talk about improv, so why not try it yourself? Whole World Improv Theater has in-person improv classes for beginners and seasoned actors alike. No prior experience is needed. Our class program is eight weeks long and full of people just like you who want to learn and have a lot of fun. Just check out our website to learn more or sign up. The website is wholeworldtheater.com. And that's theater with an R-E at the end, because we're fancy. So you were described to me as the original audiovisual genius. As the current audiovisual genius, I need to know, how did you lay that foundation here? I'm going to have to say that Jackson Murphy was the guy who he wasn't a cast member. He was, he didn't, I don't even know that he ever went to class. I don't think so. But Jackson Murphy took it out of, on himself to basically run a three camera show. Did yeah. you know we used to tape the shows with three cameras? Not with three cameras, no. Yeah, three cameras. There'd be a switcher up in the booth. I mean, we had that shit going well, like a real TV show. And we had a camera crew that was dedicated to the job. It wasn't oh, yeah. like, oh, you're working cameras tonight. It was, they were in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it wasn't like, uh, you know what, Anna, instead of sit, stand, lean, why don't you be on camera too tonight and stop <laughs> the shakiness on the close-ups. Just dial it in, focus, and stay. It was dedicated people who stood on those cameras. Now, what I did was cut, was edit, and I learned how to do Final Cut Pro, which, you know, was like the burgeoning of the prosumer version of giving the power of editing into the hands of the people. And it was super fun, super easy. And I honestly, I can't take credit for the audiovisual stuff, except that I like to edit. Yeah. But as far as like the actual running the program, running the show and having switching cameras and stuff like that, it was all from what I call Jackson Murphy. Now it was Webster's vision, of course, to have a TV show. But it was yeah. the execution, really, I think, of Jackson and our sound guys at that time. Yeah. These were all just volunteers who came in? Oh, absolutely. Nobody they were got people paid. who came to see the show and loved us and wanted to be part of it somehow. How can I help? Exactly. Like I said, everybody in Atlanta loved us during that day and they would do anything for us. Very true. They contributed. We had a big roller named Bob Wiener. <laughs> you can thank me for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Phil, do you remember when you threw me through the window? Oh my God, yes. Oh, during our pilot? Yeah. Yeah, that was a little you bit. Got a, you got a little like strong man adrenaline rush. It was a little. Right through the window. One pound per square inch per square inch. <laughs> too much. Because I was like sort of joke throwing you out the window, but out the door, but I really threw you out the door. And the worst was, was there was a rolling chair for the helicopter news bit full of sharp angles sitting right there. Like a freaking bear trap. Yes, I know. I, I was so sad. Do you remember when I broke through the glass window yes. in the lobby? Yes. Oh my oh God. God. Okay. So I got pretty badly cut on my stomach and arms. This is an entertaining story for you, John, because you probably haven't heard this one. Probably <laughs> broken up into different rehearsal groups. Yeah. Somebody was in the front lobby near the street and the other group was in the back lobby near where the bathrooms and lounge are. We were separated by a wall and part of the wall had like a blacked out window from where it used to be an office space. Who knows? So that blacked out window was there and the other people in the other group, the A group, were being very loud. And I took it upon myself in my social justice sort of way to be very loud in my scene. And so at one point I ran up and I banged on that window and went through it. 
like right in the middle of my scene. There was just horror and gasps from all around as I'm sitting there hanging in that window, glass cutting into my stomach. And the first thing I hear is, from Thomas Boyd. <laughs> Thought it was the funniest thing he'd ever seen. And I'm sitting there hanging there with glass digging into my stomach. Yeah, we used wow. to get crazy. Stitches was that? I didn't have to go to the hospital. It was just like a, a shallow cut. So I didn't get stitches for it. I just like, you know, put some band-aids and stuff on it. You know, we were freaking 20 something. Yeah. And I was like, ah. Superheroes. So after the theater, what were your journeys after the theater? I mean, I was basically kicked out of the theater because I was one of the first people that wanted to like branch out and do acting outside of the theater. And that was kind of frowned upon. But, you know, I had people come to see me in the show and they wanted to represent me with an agent and a manager. And so I was like, well, yeah, because that was obviously that's what I wanted to do anyway. And then, of course, I did leave and then pursued acting outside of whole world, outside of improv, really. Then I got married. I got pregnant. <laughs> and then I just stopped altogether. I was still doing acting, like auditioning for commercials and just whatever would come up. Um, I would definitely audition for things. And I got cast in a few things, but I stopped for a bit. And then I started painting. And so then I became a, a painter. I had some success with that. So, and that's basically what I still do to this day. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I will always call myself an actor and I think I will always find a way to, to do that to some degree, um, but it's not, it's just not my number one anymore. When we were talking with Anna and Lauren, talking about the culture and the change of our culture, mm -hmm. we're allowed to really do things outside of the theater and mm -hmm. the fact that you did such a great job in that Lifetime movie that you did, and mm -hmm. that was looked down upon because yeah. you did such a great job and yet you were being punished yeah. for doing a great job, which I think that was one of the things that there were a lot of things that hit me as we were growing up here. And yeah. I try to make sure that we celebrate every actor's. I do notice that. I do notice that. That's good. That's great. Yeah. <clears throat> and important. I'm, I'm sure that uh, now whole world is more of a launching pad for the current crew than it ever was for us. Yeah, yeah. Whole world was not interested in launching us anywhere. Whole world was interested in using us to keep being whole world. Yes. You know, Lance leaving was the biggest, even bigger than your betrayal because- well, yeah, except he used, he yelled at me for leaving. Yeah, I <laughs> he know. He was so pissed off at me for, how could you leave? And then like six months later- How could like, you leave I'm first? Leaving. Exactly. What do you mean? How could you leave first? Right. Lance was really kind of the audiovisual guy. He was like the main renegade guy. And he had all this tape of himself that he cut together when he was supposed to be cutting renegades and made his own demo reel and shopped it around. Yep. Boy, the website didn't like that. <laughs> yep, I remember that too. What was your post journey out of whole world? Uh, for me, I impregnated a lovely woman from Maine uh, whose mom, Lynn, is no longer with us. And Lynn was a great part of the whole world cast and crew at that time. I really miss her every day. And so at some point, you know, when Miles was a baby, about three years old, and then my second son came along, I got cast in a movie with Reese Witherspoon along with Michael Snow called Sweet Home Alabama. And we basically said, okay, it's time. And so Rain 
my ex-wife and I moved with our new baby, Beckett, and our three-year-old son, Miles, here to Los Angeles. Here's where I pursued acting. I had a little bit of a day job, still painting for Del Jew. I worked with Lance and some of the whole world cast on the Lance Crawl Show, which was on Spike TV. And then after that, I started to run into financial problems because I couldn't really, the painting thing didn't work out for me as far as Del Jew anymore. So I needed to get a real job. And so I found I had a love for color grading in post-production and I started getting into that. And before long, like that was what I was doing. Like that's been my profession pretty much since the probably... I guess, Spike TV. I've done a couple little acting things here and there. I'm, for whatever reason, I'm tight with a lot of the urban LA entertainment scene. So I'll get calls from from that crew every once in a while to come out and do stuff. But for the most part, I am in post-production as a colorist and really loving it. It gave me a chance to be with my kids every weekend. Now, not to say there's not overtime. I'm in the entertainment industry. So it's just like working at Whole World in a sense that if there's something to do, you don't leave till it's done. You know, you have no other life really outside of it. But it gave me a chance to be with my kids, raise them. And I found that not going out on acting auditions and praising myself and that stress and worrying about, am I good enough yeah. as an actor was really helpful for my mental health yep. and allowed me to be a better dad. That was the hardest. That, that's why I think that in ter- improv, going back to do improv was definitely fun and a thrill for me. But the actual auditioning process and then all of that stuff, it just, it started to just get really hard and I hated it and I resented it. And so, yeah, my mental health was more important to me. So I was just like, I'm quitting. I'm just quitting. Yeah. And I quit. I quit doing it. I quit auditioning. I no longer have an agent and I don't do it anymore. Yeah, me either. I still have a (laughs) uh, headshot that I use for my LinkedIn page that's about 15 years old. (laughs) But now I use my improv powers for good by running a weekly D&D session uh, with my young adult sons. And uh, that's that's pretty much where I get my kicks (laughs) these days, making uh, NPC and monster voices to amuse my children and their friends. Well, let me just tell you that we were so excited that you guys could join us today and wanted to say that don't ever doubt because growing up here at Whole World, I looked up to both you and Jenny. We're always super talents in my mind and still are to this day. So thank you. I love you guys too. I love you, Jenny. I love you, Chip. I love you, Phil. I love you, Chip. I love you, John. (laughs) Well, thanks so much for tuning in to the Whole World Podcast. I'm Chip Powell. I'm Johnny Hunt. And we will see you next week with Sarah Baker and Michael Sweeney. Thanks for listening to the Whole World Improv Theater Podcast. This is the seventh episode, so we're one year old in dog podcast years. The Whole World Improv Podcast is a production of Whole World Improv Theater in association with Headspace Industries. The executive producer, writer, and Lord High Constable is Chip Powell. This episode was also produced by John Mihalik. Huh, finally a dose of humility on those credits, huh, John? Original music by the gentle readers. And that was original music by me. Please help support this podcast by liking, subscribing, and leaving us a review. We'd really like to know we're not alone in the podcast universe. Whole World Improv Theater is a 501c3 nonprofit theater. Please support by donating at our website, wholeworldtheater.com. And remember, it is tax deductible, so you won't need to claim your houseplant as a dependent this year. 
additional writing and voiceover from me, Kate Arlo. For the last episode, I was on a lot of steroids and hadn't slept in a couple days. I felt like it was the magic formula. I'm trying to reel it in this week. Well, thanks so much for tuning in to the Whole World Podcast. I'm Chip Powell. I'm Jamie Hunt. And we will see you next week with Sarah Baker and Michael Sweeney. Yeah. <laughs> Terrible. We're still recording, so we're going to bumper that bark sound onto the very end. <laughs> okay. Yay. Great idea. Great idea. <laughs>